Hello, everyone. Welcome to Killer Serials. This is Tony Jones. This is Ryan Parker. And uh, we're just a couple dudes with PhDs in theology who talk about television shows. That's, uh, that's the, the really most good natural, TV shows. That's the most really, natural really thing in the world. T- yeah. Happy to do it. And uh, as as our listeners know, we're going through Rectify all 30 episodes week by week. And holy mackerel. <laughs> uh, what an episode we we have reached we have reached the halfway point and it is uh a dramatic what a turn what a turning it's point a, huh it's a dramatic i feel like uh you know we're at the top of a cliff watching a crime happen with a dead body floating down the river that's that's, that's what it feels like <laughs> hey tony who better to talk about this episode with than one of the co-writers yeah, we welcome Kate Powers to our podcast. What an what a total this is honor! A treat. To, yep. Yeah, to have one of the the co writer of this episode and writer of several other episodes. Kate, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, thank you so much for asking me. One of the one of the more uh, anxiety riddled episodes so far. Uh, I was kind of on the edge of my seat the whole time. Yeah, you think when it opens with Tawny and Daniel in bed that things might be a little tense? <laughs> <laughs> hey, Kate, we've had we've had a couple of your fellow writers on, um, Scott Teams and and Michael Fuller Michael and Graham Gordy. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that was just such a treat too. And I, I'll tell you, Scott just spoke so highly of you, and was was like, "This is you have to have Kate on to oh. talk about her work on the show." And so for us, we've been looking forward to this for. A long time and um as we did with with those guys i wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about your career in this industry what and specifically kind of what led you to rectify how you got to be a part of that writer's room um and then we can kind of make a turn into into really getting into this episode i'd be happy to talk about that um in part because i could not figure out how to do this when i hadn't done it yet and so i have kind of a (laughs) a side project of explaining it as best as I can is to anyone who wants to know. So uh, always happy to sort of unpack this a little bit. Um, yeah. Step one, uh, figure out that people write television, uh, which is a very late in life discovery for me. Like I, I say this more often than I should, but I really did think it was like a vending machine or maybe like some supercomputer that chucked out a script and then people took it and went to set and filmed it. So once I realized, oh my God, people are writing these, um, then I kind of turned my attention to like, yeah, but how? And was writing spec scripts, which at the time was the sort of go-to sample. And I still actually feel strongly that a spec script or a couple spec episodes of shows that are on the air is some of the best training there is. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you have them, your only use for them really is applying to fellowships uh, could try to get representation, but I was living in Chicago at the time, and there's sort of a, a bias against representing writers who haven't made the trip out to one of the coasts. Um, or you can apply to graduate school. So I applied to graduate school and got into the University of Southern California screenwriting program uh, and enrolled because I got into USC's film school. My God. And I loved it, and I sucked all the knowledge I possibly could in through every eyeball, ear hole, everything, taste buds. I would have licked the building <laughs> if I thought it would have helped. 
But my first internship, which was late in my MFA program, it was the fourth semester, last semester of my second year, uh, was on this show that was starting just starting out first season and very hard to describe and very hard to uh, explain to anyone, you know, like what the show was. And I would go to the writer's office and I would do research for them and they'd give me a book and they'd say, read this and, and highlight every reference to childcare in this book. And I'd read like, you know, you know, 400 pages of American history and find three references to how mothers and home life was evolving during this time. And I write a little email and send it off. Um, and I loved it. But whenever I would be with an earshot of the writer's room, I would listen to them breaking story. And it was so unlike anything I had done, either on my own or in a USC class or even in conversation with other writers, because um, it was so intimate and it was so emotionally raw and so brave in its desire to find these moments where where a human being is exposed and and consumed by a powerful emotional moment um, and then to dramatize that so that the audience feels it too. And I'd listen to these pitches and I'd, I'd get like this feeling in the back of my throat, like, oh my God, that's terrifying and glorious. And I don't know how to do this. And I don't know how these people know how to do this. And this is, I don't know anything. I don't know what I've done. I don't know what I'm doing with an MFA. I have to learn more. Um, and the reason I was having those experiences was because that show was Mad Men, uh, and there were no what? shows like Mad Men. Oh and gosh. I did not know wow. I was on, I mean, I knew I was on Mad Men. I knew that's what was on the stationery, but I did not know. No one knew that Mad Men was Mad Men. No one knew yeah. that AMC was going to become AMC. They had been running, you know, re like just rerunning like eighties movies over and over and over again. Bad blockbusters. Three, yeah. And so this was AMC's big break into original content. They'd done a miniseries with Robert Duvall a little while before, but this was it. Yeah, that's right. And, yeah. and like, it really was such a lesson in like how you don't know what you don't know until time shows you how things are evolving around you. So formative, giantly formative experience, listening to the Mad Men's writer's room, break story, uh, getting to contribute research and do reading and whatnot for them. And then the timing of the writer's strike was such is it was like 2007 through the start of 2008. Yes, that's right. Uh, that their assistants were tied up on other jobs. They had been thinking that they would not be able to work uh, because of the writer's strike. So they had taken jobs. Like one person was an assistant to the showrunner of a Knight Rider series. Is that possible? I think so. I think they brought me back as a writer's assistant for like eight weeks on season two. And I was there when they were like talking about what season two was going to be and what year it was going to be and how they were going to plan the story and like the elements that were going to be contributing. And I was just like, I'll do this for as long as anyone will pay me to do it. Yeah. And on Mad Men, when I had been an intern in the first season, the assistant who had really interviewed me and hired me was named Jennifer Hutchison. And she had left Mad Men at the end of first season to go be the showrunner's assistant on Breaking Bad. And she had been promoted to writer's assistant on that show in the second season. And she basically emailed me and she was like, would you like to be a writer's PA? Because I need a writer's PA and I know that you work very hard. And I was like, yes, absolutely. So... Then I went to Breaking Bad, uh, which also at the time was not yet Breaking Bad. Like, I don't even, 
I think the show was airing while we were making season two, maybe. Maybe it had just aired. Maybe it aired in that winter. But, like, it didn't have a huge audience. Uh, the New York Times review was, I think, kind of rude. Um, so I go to Breaking Bad. Well, the premise and was just bananas. The, yeah, just bananas. Yeah, we never seen anything like it, yeah. they're exactly like the Mad Men writer's room. But also, Vince Gilligan has, like, this Kubrickian sense of visual storytelling where he comes in with this, like, what he would call a non-submersible unit, sort of a Kubrickian concept that gets tossed around a bit. He'd have this image of like a thing and he'd be like, so this is a shot. I think it's the opening. I think it's the end. How do we get there? And then this room of like a, a playwright and a, a former criminal attorney, defense attorney and filmmakers, just, just incredible depth of bench would just throw everything they could think of at the wall and we'd throw out ideas. They would throw out ideas that other people would just build a whole series around as not good enough. So that went on season two, season three, season four. Eventually I become the writer's assistant. Eventually Jenny gets promoted to staff writer. And I'm I'm also script coordinator at this point. So I'm seeing the scripts. I'm seeing them evolve from writer's draft to revised writer's draft to studio draft to network draft. The notes are coming. The changes are happening. I, I I liken it, and I apologize to any surgeons who are actually listening to this, but I liken it to like a, a surgical fellowship that I thought when I left film school that I knew what I was doing, and then I got to see what it yeah. looks like in the operating room, and I was like, oh, this is going to take a while. So that's that, that sort of formative experience in Mad Men sort of lit a fire under me to just keep learning until literally someone forced me to stop learning and start doing and i was i was writing on my own and working on my own stuff through this but i yeah it's not it's not at the same level right so um breaking bad has this giant hiatus after season four season Mm -hmm. five is looming on the horizon and melissa bernstein who was in constant contact with breaking bad like every day and i as writer's assistant and at one point showrunner's assistant like we emailed and talked constantly about like production demands and scheduling and all this kind of stuff. She was like, in January, I have something. I can't say what it is, but you could have a job if you wanted it. And maybe I just, she didn't promise it. She was like, we should stay in touch. So when season five of breaking bad was coming back, I just knew I'm not going to get a script. There's no way, and I don't begrudge anyone this decision, the New York Yankees are not going to let the bat boy up to bat during the second game of the World Series. They're not going to do that, nor should they. Um, So I didn't go back to Breaking Bad for its last two seasons, and I was actually on Pan Am, which was interesting and a fascinating experience. And Melissa calls me up and she's like, would you like to come in for an interview for this show, Rectify? Here are the, she gave me two scripts. The first two episodes were already written. You've watched the first two episodes. You can only imagine what the experience (laughs) of reading them is. And I have now been twice through the experience of like walking into basically an empty room, not knowing what I'm going to experience. And then like all around me, oh, this is Mad Men oh, this is Breaking Bad, it turns out. So I'm reading Rectify, and I'm just like, what is even happening? I don't I don't understand what is happening. So I go to the interview, 
and I don't have any preconceived notions about what to do or what to say. It just is a very raw, very intimate show. It takes a huge number of risks. I can't even really wrap my head around the idea of somebody who would write the scene where Daniel is masturbating on one side of a door and his sister's on the other side of the door. Like, I cannot. So I just go and I'm just completely present in the room and being, I mean, interviewed by Ray. And I just, I don't have any capacity to like be glib or try to promote myself. I'm just like, this is, I have never seen anything like this. And I have sat in some rooms with some uncomfortable conversations in my life. And this, this took me to places I've never been. And I don't know. I, I guess it may be my honesty or possibly because I had been working for like at this point, four years. And I'm sure that Melissa spoke highly of me because, you know, I, Melissa Bernstein is, I think she hung the moon. Um, and I love working for her, but so anyway, I got, I became the writer's assistant and I rectified that. That took a long time to cover. No, but what's, yeah, but that's- what's so fascinating is that, uh, you know, people now we talk about that being the, like the golden age of scripted television. And you were really like, you were in two of the shows that are on the Mount Olympus of television of that era. And, you know, I think rectify though maybe it didn't have the viewership of Mad Men and Breaking Bad, it still belongs in that can you know, in that pantheon. I so, would absolutely, it, it, sorry, I would absolutely agree yeah. with that. Be, but for this very specific reason, because, because it's Ray McKinnon's show. Um, and I, mm-hmm. he has, he's beyond being a storyteller. Um, he's, he's truly an artist and, and like someone who just understands the human experience on a level that I've met very few people who can, who can equal. And so for that reason, I completely agree. Well, it um, just seems like all three of those, all three of those shows, you know, you talk about not people not really knowing what to do with them. I'm sure, I'm sure that network executives did not know what to do with them, but all three of those shows really, in some ways, like broke the medium or pushed the medium way. I mean, you even talk about that scene of of you know Daniel masturbating and think like who does that and what what <laughs> network executive allows that to go on their network? Uh, well, Sundance obviously was is probably uh, has a little more latitude on something like that. But all three of those shows were obvi- were just breaking um, boundaries of of the of that medium yeah hey kate you brought up ray and and graham michael and scott also talked about just what a what a talent he is you got called up to the plate it to use your baseball analogy and uh 210 was not your first episode but the the episodes that you've been involved in that you've written i think i think you had successful at bats i mean that's an understatement but i think 210 so far like I said before, what a, what an incredible episode! But you and Ray are are listed as co writers on this episode. What was it like working with Ray? Uh, you know, maybe if you want to talk about in general, but on this specific episode, maybe as a way for us to turn into our con- conversation about it. Sure, sure. Um, so 
yeah, so Rectify, I'm there before there's a room. I set it up because I'm the writer's assistant and I bring the furniture in and the boards and I order the office supplies. And I, I think Michael Graham might have touched on this. Nobody in the room but me had seen an episode get broken in a room before. Even Evan Dunsky, who worked on CSI, had never really been there when a room breaks stories. So like Rectify's internal structure is like, it, it's like embossed on my brain because I was there until they turned the lights off on the writer's room every season. And I would take the notes and I would take the photographs of the board and I would write up these prep documents that would sort of say like, here are the scenes, here's what's going to happen in them, which they could use for location searching and things. And, and at some point, probably early on in the first season, because I was also the only woman in the room, I would get asked, you know, what do you, what do you think Amantha would do? What does that sound like something Tawny would do? And I had just been in so many rooms at this point that I would sort of volunteer sometimes, you know, here's what I think. Um, I don't, that doesn't sound right to me. If I was her, I would walk out of the room at that moment or whatever, you know? Um, and so it's a hard the question you're asking is a hard question to answer because it's kind of like you've got I'm gonna, I'm gonna do another metaphor I'm so sorry I do this quite a bit I you've got the finished bowl of cookie dough and you're like so what was the brown sugars experience here huh. good, good luck yeah, with the tweezer, like pulling yeah. the brown sugar out like so um I, and the other thing is that, and this is very common in a lot of rooms, it, it, it slides into somewhere between role play and make-believe, a reenactment, but not reenactment because it's never been done before, of moments, of scenes and characters' lives. And when that starts to happen, for me, my experience is, I, I form no memories during those moments. I am no longer there. I am now Ted Sr. or uh, I am Ted Jr. or I'm Janet. And it's weird. It's actually, I have, I have on more than one occasion, like Ben Ted Sr. arguing with Janet about the dangers of having Daniel in the house, given how young Jared is, given what we don't know about him. And Janet was there, but she was Ray. And we were arguing about whether or not Daniel had to leave the house. Um, but that's, that's, that's all I have. We had somebody else taking notes at that point. Cause I was not forming memory. So I don't feel like I'm giving you a very good answer here, but no, I, I think I, it's revealing into the process though. You know, I think for, it's about trust and yeah. I think it's about willingness to take risks and, and I will just say like art is scary and storytelling is scary. It's terrifying to try to reenact human experience and know that if you get it wrong, your audience, who are all humans, will recoil and go, oh, that's what? That's not like a human would, a person would be. And Ray, because of his acting background, I imagine, I, I think his life experience, I think just who he is. He created a space in every writer's room for people to live inside the story, live inside these characters, and try to take them to places they hadn't been before. And he did it with such courage 
and such faith that it was all going to work out that, you know, and, and not a lot of showrunners would have said to the writer's assistant, would you like to co-write this episode with me? And would you like to co-write the second episode yeah. with me? We haven't even aired the first episode. We may not have even cut the first episode together, but I'm ready to, to have you co-write this with me. It was, I can't speak enough to the, just the artistic courage that he brought to the process. There's a, there's a kind of a prophetic nature to, to what you just talked about. And I'm glad you brought it up because um, we have discussed at length, Amantha, Tawny and Janet. And this is two guys. We recognize this two straight white guys talking about female characters. Um, Amantha has, is a difficult character um, Mm -hmm. at times. But I'll tell you this, and I, I don't I don't want to I'm not implying anything negative about people, uh, about any writer in that writer's room, because quite frankly, there's this has just been brilliant work. And obviously, you know, that we've enjoyed talking to Scott and Michael and Graham. But when when you're involved in an episode, there's just a different tone to female characters. And I think it's just a testament to the necessity of of diversity in the writer's room. Because in this episode specifically, and again, I don't know whether, uh, you know, this is uh, your ideas, Ray's ideas, but Amantha goes uh, to another level as a character here when she confronts Daniel at the end. It's almost like she puts on her big girl pants in a way that we haven't seen her do before. Um, And we know that she's kind of suffered for Daniel with Daniel, but there seems to be this separation that could take place. Obviously we don't know. We haven't watched ahead. Uh, we should probably have said that, but I just, I, I loved how her character kind of evolved within this episode. And it, 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 I don't know, maybe I'm making uh, it, making it too simple. It just didn't surprise me that you were involved uh, or that there was a woman's voice uh, behind the scenes here. Um, and I don't know if that's a question or just a comment, but um, I appreciated uh, the way that, that that happened over this episode. Well, thank you for saying, and uh, I'll, I'll take the compliment going against decades of Midwestern training to, <laughs> to be self-deprecating. Um, I can't, Oh, I really feel like I can't take credit for it. I'll say I'm glad. And that abs- it's absolutely true that I tried to be an advocate for all the characters whenever we broke all the stories together in the room, um, you know, writing things on cards and putting them up and sort of reading each other's scripts and, and giving feedback and, and whatnot. Um, so I don't know that I, I can say it's, it's certainly not, it's not under any circumstances, quote unquote, all me. Um, but to whatever degree I, I shaped it, I'm, I'm appreciative of the chance to do it. And I'm glad you, it, it resonated with you for sure. Hey, Kate, can you take us into the writer's room um, on the, for episode 210? You know, you've come to the end of the second season. Uh, do you know that there's going to be a third? There, you, you must know because the way that the episode ends, that it's been renewed for a third season. And you've got all these storylines. Some are coming to a close and then they get like torn back open in just the last few minutes of the episode, but what was it like? What, what are your memories of the writer's room for 210? Oh, uh, 
Well, first, I'm not sure that we knew that there was a third season coming. It was often, but the first season did not air for over a year, as I recall. I think it aired in April of 2013, and we'd written it in April of 2012. So, and then when it aired, there was no sense of when season two, if there'd be a season two. Um, So, you know... I, I, what I remember is, is being scared for the characters. I remember being scared for Tawny and Daniel. Not that I thought, I mean, like we're the writers, nothing's going to happen without our permission. Right. But when they're in that room together in the hotel room at the top of that episode and they're holding hands I'm so scared for them that they are going to go to a place that they'll never come back from or that they, they won't be able to get through with the tools that they have. Like, and I'm, I'm terrified for Teddy Jr. Uh, how much he's, how much love he has for Tawny and how much she means to him and how, Little. How bad he is! How bad he is at oh. t- t- letting her know that <laughs> he's like a caveman doing brain surgery. It's <laughs> God <sick>. yeah. <laughs> bless, oh Teddy. Like Teddy. I'm gonna stick a twenty dollar bill in her purse. I don't know like, what else to do. <laughs> like Clean is an actor of such sensitivity and such emotional intelligence, and he gets inside Teddy and be and. It, you can only be that emotionally inept if you have the ability to be much more apt. Uh, it's just watching him do this is just, oh my God, it hurts. It hurts. Mm-hmm. And I remember the scene where Teddy is going to ask Tawny, it's a scene in the hallway and there are a bunch of versions of it. And I, I couldn't tell you, I think it's a Ray scene and I think it's a Scott scene to some extent that that's a conversation that they had that shapes that but I also remember being in that scene pitching it or breaking it or something and like the longing for love and acceptance that's walking out the door and there's no words and there's no tools and there's no grasp no palette of of anything you can reach for to to make it stop make her stop walking make her not do this i think i think i cried uh thinking about it before it had ever been shot because i was so upset by it so and i that's not uncommon i don't know that we were that intent in season two at that moment but i know that we've had moments breaking the story where and we were probably in character at the time where Amantha would say something to Daniel or Daniel would say something about his life and the person pitching the person hearing the pitch other people we'd be crying because our hearts would be breaking for these people well uh, crying let's say our eyes were wet let's say there was some surreptitious wiping of eyes with shirt cuffs let's say that (laughs) afterwards Mm -hmm. yeah so, it was a little dusty in the room. Yeah. God's room has not been vacuumed in a very long time. Uh, yeah, that was this. That was 
I would say that that's the vibe when we're when we're breaking story in general. And I, could, yeah, I like you. I recently rewatched Two Ten so that I would have a little bit more familiarity with it when we spoke. And oh, I just need to like lie down. I have been so much discomfort. I want all the characters just to lie down and stop messing up each other's except, lives. Except for Daniel and Toddy, who should get out of that bed. Get out of bed, and you should never lie down and together they should again. Not be holding hands. All of these things, these are terrible, oh. terrible decisions. Terrible decisions. Yeah. Hey, God. speaking of speaking of decisions, one that kind of intrigued us. I know Tony has been a fan in the last couple of episodes, particularly of Jared. But in this episode, he goes to Hannah's house. And it's just you're, the whole time you're like, oh, what what is going to happen? What's he doing? Bobby Dean shows up and you think, oh, man, you know, you know what he did to Daniel. This could not end well. And then Jared's holding this teddy bear mm-hmm. and. Bobby Dean says to him, take it all. You'd be doing us a favor. I thought that was such a succinct, brilliant way to unpack that the, the pain and suffering of that family. Because in an earlier episode of this podcast, we talked about, and, and I think we've done it in a couple episodes, we talked about memory mm-hmm. and how, how memory and remembering functions in this series mm-hmm. and that there are ways to do that, right? You can hold on to a memory of a, of an event or a tragedy in ways that breed uh, uh, anger and violence as we see with Bobby Dean. And then there are ways to remember it where there's a process of letting go. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me like Bobby Dean's ready to let go in this moment in ways that maybe his mother isn't just, just given the shrine that she's kind of left. Yeah. To, you know? But I just, I loved that, that choice for him to, to say that and to kind of let go. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely agree. I feel like I'm almost just talking about people that I know and I have no idea why they do the things they do. Um, I have come particularly as like my career has evolved and I've, I've watched, you know, over and over again, the principle of like, you really just don't know. You, you really cannot predict. Um, I've come to have a, a better understanding of the idea of grace and the way that there is something in the world that we don't really control that comes to us when we need it. And that's in my mind, that's what's happening in that room because Hannah's brother, you know, he's never sat in a therapist's office. He's never journaled. He's not picked up a book on the self-help shelf. And yet at that moment, he finds the thing he needs to do to give himself some peace It seems like, I mean, you don't even, one of the interesting things uh, about watching him really from a distance, I mean, it seems like sometimes even um, you're like seeing him through Jared's eyes a a couple episodes prior when Jared like is kind of peeping Tom through their windows and, but it just looks like he's falling apart as a person. Like, like maybe he thought beating the shit out of Daniel at the end of uh, season one was going to be a kind of a pressure release valve for him. But in fact, of course, as you know, any of us who are adults know uh, violence does not mitigate violence. So he just feels worse and he's kind of falling apart. Um, 
And that, that was such an interesting moment of grace where, and he's like, take anything you want. I just wanted to go back a minute to a- asking you about the Tawny Teddy relationship and writing that for this mm-hmm. season or for this episode in particular, because I've said this to Ryan in, in a couple previous episodes, but it hit me again as I watched 210 today. Um, I really, I, any, okay, I've, I, like a lot of us, I've been a part of romantic relationships that end. And watching that scene in the front of their house uh, with her suitcase packed and she comes down the stairs, it it just really, it, it rang so true to me. So I'm just wondering about the writing of that and the acting of that. And it, it, it seems to me something that would be really, really hard to do well, even though it's almost a universal human experience to break up with someone you've been in love with. And yet, for some reason, it's one of those things that you often see done poorly or it doesn't quite touch your soul, but I thought it really did. Um, And obviously you had great actors to work with there. So I just wondering if you have thoughts looking back on that, making that scene work. Um, I will say, I think it took a couple of, longer conversations because of the the difficulty of it and the desire to I'll use the phrase get it right knowing that nothing is ever truly perfect or you know you don't ever get it right you know with capital R but you get as close as you can um and all the different sort of shades that exist within Teddy Jr. and exist within Tawny which ones would rise to the surface in that moment. And, and the people who are telling the story are all that we all have enough distance, just this much, not much, but this much to be able to put words on a page that represent our lived experience. So we have that much distance, right? So, and like you said, we've all been through breakups or loss of one kind or another. So we're all more equipped for this than Teddy Jr. is, and we all want for him. And it's weird because it is, I really think it's Teddy's scene because it's, even though it's Tawny's decision to stay or go, it's Teddy's decision to decide consciously or unconsciously how hard he's going to try, how vulnerable he's going to get, how big a risk he's going to take with her. And, you know, God bless him. He's trying harder than he's ever tried ever in his life. And what that would look like. I know, I know that for sure there was a version where he was very cold and faking Mm. like he didn't care. There was a version where he came and I'm not saying this ever hit paper, but for sure it was discussed where he came completely apart at the seams. Uh, And it was like all, it all came out. Like Um, rage. Yeah, with everything yeah. we, because and that's this is very much the rectify room, but it's also every great room I've ever been in or overheard talking. You try everything, you try everything in the closet on until you find the thing that really fits the moment, and then that's what you go with. And then also, look the way you you shoot things, you start wide and you go tight, and so the actors they're doing the performance sort of 
almost geologically where they start really present, really in the moment, really in character, really centered. But as the camera is getting closer to them for the closer shots, they're making the choices that will, that show up on the, on the screen when they're, you're that close to them that like the little muscles at the corner of the eye, the, like the little muscles, like, you know, at the corner of the mouth, the things that like, as humans, we go, Oh my God, that person is broken or that person is just barely holding it together. Um, those things, they come to the surface because the actor is getting deeper and deeper. And if nobody has said this, and I apologize for not having listened to all of your episodes, I've listened to quite a lot of them and they're really so in depth, but Ray is himself an actor and a director of actors and the work he does with the cast on set with them, giving them permission to try things, letting them feel like they can try. And if it doesn't work, they can just do it again. That's quite rare in television and the scale of rectify the way that the scenes are long and slow versus many scenes that go faster. That's a function of the fact that when they're on set, like there's a, almost like a bubble around Ray and the actors and the director of the episode protecting the space for the performers to find what they're doing, if that makes sense. So if that's, I have to say, if nothing else, the single greatest asset of Rectify is Ray's understanding of acting and emotional truth and his willingness to create that space for the actors and their willingness to show up. I mean, you've, you've seen the entire Rectify cast everywhere else. Jay Smith Cameron is uh, just a delight on succession. Um, everything they do is, I could just watch them for a million years. I just saw John. I just saw John Stern. I just saw Luke Kirby on something that I was like, "Hey, all right, Luke Kirby, what great work!" So anyway, sorry, momentary sidebar. But yes, that's yeah, the story. He's yeah, yeah, yeah. He's Lenny Bruce in the in the. That's it. Mitchell. Yes, that's what I saw him and in. He's freaking incredible as Lenny Bruce. I'm like watching Lenny Bruce clips and being like, "That guy, that is a spot on Lenny Bruce." But uh, yeah, there it's such a gifted cast. I mean, that's got a that's got to be a big part of it. Hey, Kate, talking you, you talked earlier about, you know, writers, um, the, the writers rooms you've been a, a part of, you know, kind of daring to do things differently or to, to take risks and putting things on the page and on the screen that we really haven't seen before. And this one isn't quite as controversial, but it, it, it is interesting in a way in terms of the, the approach that we take to the series uh, is kind of from a spiritual religious perspective um, and we've seen so many crime dramas come and go and and stories about justice and wrongful detainment and things like that. Who who brought up the concept of banishment um, in these last two episodes? Because it works mm-hmm. so well thematically and especially from a kind of a theological s- standpoint. But that's not something that we often see in, in series like this. So I wonder if that was a lengthy conversation about, OK, what's Daniel's? You know, it, it kind of comes out of left field, right, for most of most viewers who think, oh, he'll just go back to prison or he's going to go back to death row. But no, here's this idea of banishment and we're going to exile him from the community. Um, I know that Michael and Graham talked about some of the folks that we we had come talk to us, uh, the former San Quentin warden and some people who were uh, exonerated that 
very graciously shared their experience. I don't know if anyone has mentioned Jay Connell or Jay Connell. Uh, I hear it in Ray's voice in my head, but I don't have a Georgia accent. So I, as a Midwesterner, would call him Jay Connell. Um, but he's uh, he's a criminal defense attorney um, who is a, like a no-joke appellate attorney who has uh, brought death row cases to, I want to say, the Georgia Supreme Court and want to say somehow also the Supreme Court, the one in Washington. Anyway, he and Ray grew up in the same town. Uh, their families know each other. And Jay is like a very serious, accomplished lawyer who, when we were calling him at one point in season three, we had to time our calls because he was in Guantanamo representing people who were interned there. Um, that's the degree to which he sort of an advocate for uh, the rights of the accused and making sure people have a, a fair trial. Um, and he's very patient with us because we don't know what we're doing. And I feel pretty certain he's the person who first said the words banishment to us um, because we frequently would not know what we were doing. And he would be the one who would say, well, Daniel is obviously under a bond. They did not just let him out of prison. They must have put up some kind of bond to, to let him go or you know, this is this is how you would bring him back. This is how you would retry him. I also think in episode 10, when they talk about a proffer letter and they talk about the fact that anything that Daniel says in that conversation with uh, yeah. other persons and senator folks, that's 100% Jay Connell holding our hand and, and helping us understand, like, here's how it works, that you can do this and nobody can hold this against you later if you've signed this letter. And, um, you know he's he's kind of like the the uncredited researcher uh in the show who just kept us from making so many embarrassing mistakes and this concept of banishment is one of these things uh that the minute we heard it you we were like our eyes just just like yes let's do that yes yes that 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 let's do that that sounds good we'll do that um and it's yeah and this this weird thing that keeps happening where there's just an obvious almost biblical overlap like the six episodes of the first season just very naturally lent themselves to a, a kind of metaphorical genesis and then this idea of banishment which has all these kind of like overtones of exile and being a pariah and whatnot um yeah so that's where that idea came from but it was one of those rare moments where the minute it was said out loud i think ray knew and the rest of us we're right behind him and thinking, well, that's yeah. obviously what it has to be. Yeah. Yeah. You might've heard us last week refer to it as kind of like almost old Testament mm -hmm. justice, mm -hmm. you know, um, it, it was, it was super interesting that, and I clearly you had some, you know, obviously I thought during this episode, like you definitely had some legal, um, consultants because I mean, even the fact that, the, you talk about the bond, like Daniel wasn't exonerated. Right. He was, he was let out of prison kind of pending another trial with the new DNA evidence yeah. uh, in play. So it's a, po it's a post conviction mistrial is mm -hmm. the best way I would describe it. It's a post conviction okay. mistrial. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I guess just last question about two ten. It's such an intense, last two minutes or so just the music the cutting from all these different characters 
uh, and where we leave them. You know, we th- the nice thing for us is we get to watch episode 301 next week. But of course, original viewers had to wait, what, six or nine or 12 months and, and not knowing what was going to happen with these characters, you know, not knowing if the offer was going to be rescinded because Teddy now wants to press charges of assault against Daniel, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I, I just wonder, I guess, if you can reflect back on how you, the, the intensity of those last couple minutes of 210 and r- the writing and the filming of those. Um, to the best of my ability, sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. First of all, shout out to Arvo Part. Uh, I hope I'm saying his name right. The composer of that yeah, music, yes. which is just like a knife in the heart. It's so sad and hopeful. It, and it, it, it's almost like he somehow knew Daniel's soul when he was writing it many, many years before the script Rectify had ever been written. So that's Arvo Part is a big ha part of this it's almost hard to put into words the extent to which the process of telling the story overlaps with the story itself. So that when you're finishing up in a room and you look around and you think in two weeks, this room is going to be all boxed up and this stuff is going to be in storage, probably in a closet in a walking dead office somewhere and maybe we'll never see any of it again because we're never going to do this again. Um, or you're on set and you're shooting the last scenes with the cast, this particular cast member or this particular cast member. And you think, you know, maybe we will never be in this building again. Maybe I will not tell this story with these people ever again. Um, there's sadness about that. And there's also acceptance that it has to be. And like Daniel's eagerness, not eagerness, but understanding that it it has to stop. At some point, it has to stop. That is also how storytelling works. At some point, you have to stop the story. At some point, the fire goes out and everyone stands up and they go back to their beds to sleep for the night. And it's it does. It, it weighs on you, but it's also just what it means to be alive. So that's, that's what I, what I sort of reconnect with when I think about the end of a season is that like, that's beautiful. My heart is breaking, but also my God, I only have a heart because we've been telling this story. Hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. Sure. Thank you so much for asking the questions. Good questions. You guys. That's like a sermon, Tony, like the best kind, right? Like, yeah that power of yeah. story and and all that kate that that was that was great i you know for for listeners out there um and and for, even for us you know just kind of following your career and and just the amazing journey you've had so far what are you what are you working on now what are you excited about now i know it's such a weird time it is a weird time and i am up to my eyeballs in ndas which is okay depressing and so frustrating. the next madman i get it i get it's, it uh, well you know <laughs> not gonna keep not gonna i get it yeah yeah um, but no, i no, will say yeah here's the thing i can say that i'm doing because i i love it so much is i'm teaching 
uh, USC, oh, where my alma mater asked me to come back and teach hour-long drama. And I've been teaching undergraduates. I just had a group of just amazing seniors with their thesis scripts that they, like, they just, God, they were Vikings. They started in September and they have waited through the roughest school year I've ever seen a group of writers face. And they just knocked it out of the park. And I had a group of graduate students last semester, and I'm going to be, I think, hopefully teaching more graduate students in the fall. And uh, yeah, there's, I great. can't speak enough to the honor of being allowed to be a sort of Sherpa uh, or, or co-traveler as these writers sort of find their voices yeah. and tell their story. So that's well, what I can talk about. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's awesome. And uh, we, we do some teaching as well. So kind of knowing that experience of when, you know, when they, when the students get it, you know, mm. or nail it, it's just such a, it's it the can best. be a thrill. Yeah. And so if it, I, we know you can't talk about what you're working on, but maybe in closing, what's something that's getting you through quarantine and COVID? What's a, a, a book, a series, a film that, you know, maybe as a, as a writer or as a fan, just as a fan, that's, yeah. that's kind of resonated uh, with you these past. Well, I don't know months. if you guys are familiar with this little known, uh, indie series Watchmen. Uh, boy, what a plucky bunch of underdogs. I loved Watchmen so much. I I've watched it three times because of all of the things that it's doing that I didn't even know TV could do. Um, that's been very, very satisfying. I've also been just totally delighted by this Hulu series, The Great, which is set in Russia yes. and is just so a, good. A, the for everything from the dialogue to the race blind casting is a, just a thrill. And then on, I've been reading sort of in drips and drabs uh, this translation. I want to say it's Wayne Redhorn's translation of the Decameron, and. Uh, Wow, Boccaccio is dirty. He is so dirty. Every time I'm like, okay, I'm fully prepared for how dirty this is going to be, and that it's even yet filthier. But you, the story of the Decameron is that it, it's Boccaccio is writing it set in the days after or during the Black Plague. So that feels, I take a great deal of comfort from that. Okay, we can't thank you enough for coming on. This was just such a a treat and uh we continue to encourage folks out there in quarantine to rediscover discover rectify and it's worth every second of your time and it's i think it's thanks to to you and 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 the team of writers and of course ray but it's just it's just been great to chat with you and hopefully maybe have you back on in the not too distant future to talk about subsequent seasons and episodes that you've been a part of but but thanks again I would love to come back. And thank you so much for asking me. This was a real honor. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Thanks, Kate. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Killer Serials. Hey, Tony, we'll be back next week with, we don't have to wait. 301, baby. We don't have to wait a year. 301. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. All right. See you next week.